Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Let's get to Dr. Cyrus Dirksen, drcyrus.com, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com. Cyrus, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Hal. How are you doing? Excellent. Uh, raising some money for a good cause. It's Friday, uh, you know, mm-hmm. chatting to my friend Cyrus. It's all good. Hey, before we get to uh, a few headlines here that we wanted to talk about, I want to ask you about this Eric Wildman being caught near Toronto and Ontario uh, today. People, you know, in in areas of the province were nervous. He was on the loose. I'm sure, uh, you know, police, Mounties were nervous about him being on the loose, armed and dangerous, and now he's been captured. And I, I just wanted to get your thoughts as a psychologist on that. I mean, it, it, I mean, for sure it's a big relief, but even just the psychology knowing that the fugitive has been caught is, is a big deal. You know, it is a big deal, um, and there there is relief. There probably would have been relief either way, honestly. There's two different kinds. The one is relief that it's over, when even with negative outcomes, people find themselves relieved that it's over. Uh, like if you're voting for something and the, the candidate you didn't vote for won, it's like, oh, shoot, they didn't win. But I'm relieved that the whole thing's over. So that would have happened. But, yes, this is even better. It's kind of like that relief, like it's nothing bad happened. And, and it's, it's a wonderful feeling relief. It's a huge reward. Uh, and uh, according to the fear, you know, this is another interesting thing. I was just kind of doing some looking around to to talk about this. Mm-hmm. It's, it's if you ask people, probably more women would say that they were kind of afraid. Or it seems from the research that more women are affected by the TV or media news uh, thing. So yes, there's there's definitely effect of the media. But you know what's interesting? I did my actual dissertation on fear of crime and so i would suggest that even though in the research it suggests that only women are affected by television only women would be afraid because of this wildman story men are probably lying about it so uh, that was my research was that men lie about their fear of crime which is why they they seem to be less afraid and so yes it probably is an effect for everybody and it's a relief that it's over well, and it, and it could have ended badly, right? I mean, gunshot, there were shots fired, and, and it certainly could have uh, ended tragically, and, and thank goodness uh, he's in custody and, and the manhunt is over. All right, uh, moving on to uh, what we had prepared to talk about here, our first headline, Why Introverts May Find It Hard When Life Returns to normal. You know, I can understand why uh, being locked down during this pandemic would appeal to an introvert. Uh, will it be even harder for them when things do start getting back to normal? We talk about Alberta lifting all COVID restrictions on, on July 1st. Is it going to be especially hard for introverts, Cyrus? You know, I've actually had, uh, I haven't taken new clients for, you know, some months uh, now. The clinic's been really full, but I actually took a few new clients and just it's just been really interesting to see uh, people, some of them are like they're coming in or are people who are more interested, you know, people who have a history of anxiety around, you know, being around other people and, and things like that. But um, it does seem like there's this increased uh, or the, the symptoms have worsened over COVID. Uh, like the, the fear of being in social situations, the fear of being in public has increased because of, so uh, because of COVID. So that's something that's actually I'm seeing in the clinic is, 
is yes, I think that this is going to be difficult. And I think that it's going to, it's going to be odd for people who aren't afraid. It's just going to feel odd. I think I'm going to resonate with just feeling like, oh, my goodness, I'm allowed to do this again. I'm allowed to kind of be close or walk down, go down the stairs, you know, next to somebody or be in a smaller room or things like this. And uh, so it's going to be odd for, I think, a lot of people. But introverts generally want to be alone. Introverts generally often will feel more anxious or socially anxious people. And, yeah, this is going to – being alone, avoiding anxiety is a relief – it's been wonderful for them in, in a way for the year, but it makes your fear worse. Uh, so, yes, this is going to be hard for them. So just like I guess maybe being locked down has been worse for people that would be described as extroverts, because I imagine, you know, there are I have friends that are very social. Uh, I'm fine to spend time alone or spend time with my, my family, Jackie, and, and, you know, lay low. But there are some people that really love to be out and about. And I imagine just like it's been really hard for them, it's going to be really hard for these introvert types when mm. we get back out there. I agree. I agree 100%. I mean, I've, I've also had some extrovert, extroverts come in who are really struggling uh, with the effects of COVID and will probably do a lot better once they're able to get out. But uh, yes, the tables are going to turn, and and I think the extroverts have really been struggling. There's been research on that where the extroverts are, are more affected by COVID than this than than the introverts. But the yes, right, we're coming up to a time when introverts are going to be like, oh my goodness, I have to do something. It was hard before, uh, but now it's excruciating to kind of go out there and and kind of build up those calluses again, kind of get themselves emotionally. Uh, tolerant of being in the presence of others and feeling that potential judgment, feeling the all the insecurities again. Mm-hmm. And for the average person, it's just going to be, as you point out, kind of weird and awkward uh, getting back to normal, doing the things that were really normal before, uh, having not done them for 15 months, and then getting back at it. It's, it's definitely going to be strange. Next headline here, yeah. time and meaning, how to make our lives more meaningful. This is a good one. Yeah, this this were this is a, a book that came out. I haven't read the book, but it was a, kind of came out with some ideas around time. And they, the philosopher broke time up into into sections. They said primary time, which they define as time as just meaningful, doing things that are meaningful in its own right, doing things that that are just feel good for themselves. Nothing else required. Then there's filler, which you can imagine what that is, just kind of filling the time. Entailed was another one. Entailed is like doing things so you can do something else, generally the primary. So let's say you like to ride horses as a primary thing that you like to do. You just like to ride them, and that's good. Entailed would be going to a job to get enough money to ride the horse later in the day. Uh, so you kind of go to work, and, and there you go. And the last one that they had here uh, was norm required. So that would be like doing something that you don't like doing necessarily, but, you know, everybody says you got to do it, like going out and moving your friend from one apartment to another for a pizza. Right. So you don't like doing it, but it's kind of norm required. It's not really mm-hmm. filler, not not getting anything out of it other than the pizza uh, and maybe a continued friendship. So <laughs> the the main thing from this was just this, the idea of what, I mean, what I took from this was what is primary? I mean, this is different from everybody, but in your life, maybe you can think about this, people can think about this, you know, what is primary in your life? What do you do for its own sake? It's not because you have to. It's not just to fill the time. It's not to do. To, you're not just doing it to do something else, mm-hmm. but you're doing it because it's meaningful for itself. Generally, it's relationships or solving problems for others. Generally, that's kind of what it is. It's it's you're engaging like with your kids or family or friends, or 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 it's like a relationship or it's kind of service. It's generally those are the things that are generally primary. Feeling like you're helping somebody. 
Um, but it's different for everybody. So I think it's a good question. You don't have all the time in the world. What is primary for you? Mm-hmm. And by putting more time into that meaningful stuff, that what you just talked about, are we happier then, or do we just feel more like our lives matter more? I think that it's um, it's a little tricky because uh, one of the counterpoints to this book is that sometimes it's the journey to getting to do the primary thing, not the primary thing itself that actually ends up making a person happy. But I would say that there is a difference between kind of a feeling of happiness, like I'm happy right now and I'm smiling, and a feeling of, of purpose and meaning. And I think when if you, if you do the primary correctly, correctly being like generally I would recommend more service-oriented things or relationship-oriented things rather than just pleasure, uh, if you do it, if you do it in a way that works, you're going to have more meaning in your life. I'm not sure as much if you're just going to have like, I'm happy today, uh, but more like, yeah, my life was, uh, was worthwhile. And I think in the end, even though people say they want happiness in the end of the day, they probably lean more towards actually wanting meaning in their life. If, if you kind of wait a little bit, they'll probably, they'll probably side with, well, actually, I want a meaningful life more than I just want to be happy um, all the time. That's kind of what sticks around. So I, I kind of shift people. I try to move people more towards meaning, purpose, primary service, those kinds of things, solving problems for others. That seems to be what sticks, is stable, and actually possible. You can't just be happy all the time. Our emotions fluctuate, but you can have a more meaningful life, and that's something that's more grounded and sticks with you. All right, and a final headline here. Six surprising findings about temper tantrums. So um, I'm anxious to hear these because uh, I guess the and the sort of the subtitle below the, the headline here was by better understanding where tantrums come from. Um, and, and so help us better understand their moms and dads out there that have kids that are, you know, prone to temper tantrums explain what are the what are the six surprising findings about tantrums or or even just a few that you kind of found interesting well i mean the first thing is to say that it's sad that we don't actually have as much research on temper tantrums as probably we would like most of it is theory based these are some of the things that we actually do know Uh, the average temper tantrum lasts about three and a half minutes the longest one that they had in one study was 27 minutes which is pretty wow (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that would be that would be painful. <laughs> uh, if it's more severe, maybe that 27-minute one. More severe tantrums can be a sign of depression. So if children are more uh, violent or towards other people or even themselves, they're more likely to be depressed. Uh, so that's something to watch out for. Even though most people, uh, many children or even most children will have a have a tantrum, if they're more severe. Uh, they're more likely to be depressed, so it can be a sign of that. Children, young children, here's another one, can be actually able to regulate their feelings to a degree. Now, I would often say that people can't regulate their own feelings independently until they're 25. Uh, so, but you can get started early. So, you know, you can, <laughs> this isn't full, you know, self-soothing. But, you know, even preschoolers can do it a little bit and can minimize their own temper tantrum. So it's good to try to help them and help them learn how. Um, yep. If you can teach your kids to speak uh, if you can help them to have better language skills, that seems to be connected with tantrum severity. So, you know, as you think, people, kids who can talk a little better, communicate a little better, can uh, have less tantrums. And the last one, maybe not the best one to end on, is if you have more tantrums, you are more likely to go to jail when you're older. But uh, this is not to say that everybody who has a tantrum is going to jail. <laughs> um, and so don't panic. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, that was something that was in the research. So. Uh, it is still something to watch out for, I guess. So something to take care of, something to help out with, 
Um, but yeah, we need more research on this, honestly. Uh, and there's lots of different ways of managing tantrums, lots of different ways. It's a bit more of an art, I would say, than a science in a sense. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're having trouble, if your child's having difficulty, you can always go and get some help. Uh, and tantrums can be one of the signs that something's wrong. It's not a guaranteed sign that something's wrong, but it can be one of those signs. Dr. Cyrus will help at uh, drcyrus.com, D-R-S-Y-R-A-S.com. Cyrus, thank you. Have a great weekend. You too, Hal. Thanks. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.